Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I am Dr. Peter Spiegel. Well, the horrible Woolsey fire is uh, finally extinguished, and it really was a huge fire in terms of impact to many, many people, to animals. The geographic area it destroyed was huge, going from the San Fernando Valley all the way to Malibu, and uh, a lot of news came from Malibu with the uh, loss of residences of uh, famous celebrities. Uh, There also was a story about the Malibu Wines business and the Malibu Wine Safari, which is, uh, as far as I can tell, a reputable operation in Malibu, and uh, they have a hundred or more exotic animals uh, that you can interact with and enjoy your wine and go wine tasting. It's supposed to be a very uh, pleasant place. Well, they've got this giraffe named Stanley, and Stanley's somewhat of a celebrity. He's got a following, and uh, for a while, it was rumored that Stanley was abandoned and Stanley was in risk of dying, and that just spun out of control on the internet and Instagram. So the Malibu Wines Safari was right in the in the path of this fire, and uh, fortunately, as far as we can tell, all of the animals uh, survived. But I have to say, it's hard to get good information on the story. Either way, a fire like this, which came on so suddenly, and really in some neighborhoods, you only had literally two hours to evacuate. That's how fast it was moving. Raises so many legal questions, such as what obligations, legal or moral, do people have to evacuate? Is it okay if they stay to try to protect their homesteads? Do they have to bring their animals with them? And uh, if you've got a sanctuary and you've got exotic animals, what sort of provisions must you uh, have in place to keep them safe? And like I said, this was an especially tough time with the short warning. So with us to explore some of these, and I'm sure to uh, pose questions that I could not even conceive of, is our good friend uh, Bob Ferber, legal expert and former Los Angeles animal cruelty prosecutor. Welcome, Bob. Thank you, Peter. Nice to be here again. So this fire affected you and your animals personally in a very big way. Please tell us about that. Yeah, I was actually, I had about two to three hours to evacuate. I was at the front of where the fire was in Calabasas and had, uh, I have seven animals at home right now, which is the least number that I've had in years. I know, shocking. Uh, Yeah, I know, including two feral cats. When the evacuation was ordered, uh, luckily this is the third time I'd been evacuated, so I was prepared. Okay, Bob, so before we uh, move to the legal questions, you've got two cats, you call them feral cats, and yet they live in your house, they avoid you, and you would have been unable to get them out unless you had had a day or two to lure them and trap them. So you left them there with a lot of food and water, I suppose, Uh, is that right? And how did they do? Right, I evacuated my seven other animals, the dogs and cats. The two I left there and I put food and water in all the different rooms. Uh, Every bathroom had food and water on the floor. and lots of water, giant bowls of water, and I filled the bathtub with about an inch of water in the bottom of that, and uh, left the windows open, the, the glass windows open, and I have security screens that were were kept closed, and oh, I had to hope for the best yeah, until I was able you. to get back in the neighborhood briefly on Sunday, several days after the fire started. I was able to get back at the neighborhood. It was quite a 
an event, uh, driving through checkpoints and seeing the devastation. It almost felt like being in a Steven Spielberg movie, you know, avoiding obstacles and going into the opposite lanes and going over, avoiding debris and and Mm -hmm. logs and little fires everywhere just to get back into the house to... it, it's very emotional because you know, I was so frightened yeah. that the cats were going to die, but I got back and I did see the ferals and they were okay. Yeah. And mm. I made sure the food and the water was still there. Yeah. And thank God my house and the neighborhood never did re- rekindle. Yes. And uh, when I got back on a couple of days later, they, they were fine. That's great. Bob, you have been evacuated a few times before, and you are not one to take chances in these situations. But were any of your neighbors determined to stay in their houses to protect them? It actually did happen. In fact, neighbors in the street uh, were talking about that. We've been evacuated before. We didn't have to. The fire never came to us before. Now, I've had a fire as close as two blocks away and with water dropping airplanes over my roof. But the, nobody had ever come, it had never gone into the residential neighborhood where I live. So there were people that, even when the police were coming down the street on the bullhorns, they were saying, oh, you know, it's far away and we don't have to worry about it. Uh, and uh, eventually most people left, but some people did choose to stay. Uh, and some people chose to ignore the evacuation orders. Some people, uh, right around the corner from me, one family left with their domesticated cats. They left. The, they many people left with their one or two dogs. One neighbor that I don't know personally left their cats in the house, and supposedly they were able to take them with them, but they chose not to, thinking that they didn't have to worry. Mm-hmm. And uh, as far as we know, we know that the house burned down. And uh, as far as everybody knows, those cats were burned to death. So your residential neighborhood, houses were burned to the ground? We had eight or nine homes that were burned to the ground or down the street from me. Uh, as, as most people have heard on the news, it was a very erratic fire. And that it depended on where embers went. Uh, you had pretty bizarre scenes of... Uh, People refusing to stay, other people immediately leaving. Uh, my ex-girlfriend and another, a good friend of mine, an animal rescuer, were both on the news, refusing to leave, hosing down their homes. Uh, in fact, uh, telling the news people that if they had left their house for burn, but because they stayed, they saved their home and other homes. Uh, and both those people, by the way, had animals, and uh, one had, both of them had uh, young, uh, children, and they chose to stay uh, through the fire. One eventually left if for about an hour. She took her children out and then returned. So what does the law say when the police with the megaphones come through and uh, are saying evacuate order is in place. And uh, do people have to leave? And uh, if they don't, what are the consequences legally? The term, do they have to? That's the loaded, that's the the $64,000 question. Uh, Legally, yes, you have to leave. Uh, Is it enforced? I think we all see that, that it's not. The law is very clear. Uh, There's no vagueness about it. Uh, Everybody has to obey the orders 
in an emergency situation of 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 law enforcement and emergency personnel. So when you hear mandatory evacuation, it means just that mandatory. But as we've all seen all over the country, whether it's fires or flooding. Uh, there are people that, in, in my opinion, all too many people that choose to ignore those orders for what, for a variety of reasons, and they remain. Uh, there's no question that's a, a criminal act, but we can all see that nobody's been willing to prosecute or arrest anybody who's violated that law. Got it. Even though we're reminded over and over again that people who remain in these homes to protect their property are putting themselves at risk and putting fire personnel at risk. Uh, but at this point, society's chosen not to enforce those laws. And Bob, what's the obligation of people who have pets to uh, bring their pets along with them? Are there any legal obligations for pet owners? The, the law the, on the care of your animals is pretty clear in the sense that you have to keep your animals safe, healthy, provide them, you know, fresh water, food, and medical care, and, and the key word is unnecessary suffering. But the difficulty is, and it's not an easy question to answer, is in a situation with a fire, uh, is it criminal neglect to leave your animals or not to take them with you? Uh, I wish I could I, actually the answer to your question, Peter, is that there is no easy answer. Okay. Uh, the law says that you need to care for your animals, and there are people that made a judgment, made a decision that their animals would be safe in their home, but they were mistaken. Hmm. One of my neighbors, her house burned to the ground, and her animals, uh, as far as we know, burned to death in the home. She, uh, she chose not to take the animals with them because presumably thought that they would be okay because we'd been evacuated before and there were no fires in the actual neighborhood. So why do it now? Neighbors asked me, can she be prosecuted? The answer is she could be, but will she? The answer is no. We are speaking with attorney Bob Ferber. After the break, we'll take on the topic of exotic animals. You're listening to Animals Today. Do you know what declawing is? People often mistakenly believe that declawing is a simple procedure that removes a cat's nails. Sadly, this is far from the truth because declawing is actually a painful surgery in which the last bone of each toe is amputated, including skin, tendons, and nerves. If performed on a person, it would be like amputating each finger at the last joint. Besides the immediate risk of surgery, like infection and bleeding, the pain cat's experience continues long after the surgery, preventing them from walking normally and leading to arthritis. Often, after declawing, cats will stop using their litter boxes, choosing carpet, beds, or piles of clothing instead. And without their claws, their first line of defense, many declawed cats will feel stressed and begin biting. Plus, if your cat happens to get outside, she'll need her claws to defend herself from other animals. Most people get their cats declawed to try to prevent unwanted scratching and damage to furniture. But scratching is a natural behavior that is important for cats. Declawed cats cannot stretch or knead normally. Why would anyone want to take that away from a cat? The bottom line is declawed cats can suffer lifelong discomfort and disability. 
It's not difficult to modify the scratching behaviors of a cat, such as having a few sturdy scratching posts around the house and using toys and catnip to encourage their use. Did you know that many countries have banned declawing? And many veterinarians in the U.S. refuse to perform the procedure because it is unnecessary and cruel. So those are the facts about declawing. There's just no reason to do this to your cats. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. Welcome back. We are speaking with Bob Ferber about the huge fire in Southern California. Bob, exotic animals, protecting them from fires. This raises different questions, as does dealing with horses. Things can go south really fast. Very fast. Uh, You mentioned horses, and even though they're not considered exotic animals, uh, any horse lover knows that horses are fear-based animals. So the moment that any situation starts to, you know, something changes, smoke in the air, uh, fire engines, or anything like that, which horses will sense before we will, you have animals that are now panicking, and you're talking about a 1,500 animal, 1,500-pound animal that can kill you or somebody else just in the process of being rescued. Uh, And this is not to mention about the exotic animals that are can be even more difficult from giraffes and, and lions or bears or or any kind of animal that is has no domestication at all. What do facilities with exotic animals need to have in place concerning safety and especially emergency planning, such as evacuation plans? Well, when you get to an institution like a zoo, they have... Zoos have uh, permits that and conditional use permits and other regulations that, in many cases, the government requires them to have an evacuation plan or at least an emergency plan. I think that when the government gets involved in permitting, they don't require an evacuation in most cases. What they require is that you have a plan in place, whether it's a sprinkler system, uh, an ability to try to isolate animals, push them into one area. Uh, so the, it, But then when you have a situation like a, a winery that has exotic animals or a sanctuary, a nonprofit, uh, there are no real rules about that. Uh, the, uh, as long as you comply with the, the rules about, you know, whatever permits they give you for safety for people, they pretty much don't address the evacuation or the emergency situation. Uh, I, I actually know a situation years ago, Peter, of a, a rescue person who had a sanctuary in Acton, California. She rescues pit bulls. And she was given funding to create a fire system to protect her sanctuary for two years she used the money for other things and didn't get around to doing the uh, the fire system to protect it, and it burned down in a fire several years ago. Well, that's so disappointing. So we need to update guidelines and laws to protect these animals, right? I, I, I absolutely think we have to. We see it all over the news. 
hurricanes, fires, that, you know, there's always the segment or the people carrying their dogs, carrying their cats, you know, uh, places that, you know, whether, you know, vegan or not you 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 all we all have an interest in that cattle and 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 animals should be at least protected as much as possible and and you saw horrible things happening to cattle and pigs back east yeah. uh you know in the floods, in the floods yeah. and you have out here you know exotic animals put at risk uh, and literally people there's no guidelines it's every group for itself so i think that I, I'm a little reluctant to have the government step in and mandate because I'm being an ex-government prosecutor. I'm a little suspicious that government doesn't necessarily speak for the welfare of animals. Uh, but I would like to see well-intentioned and knowledgeable groups, maybe working with fire personnel and the police over the country to develop guidelines and maybe institute some mandatory Laws. And, uh, if you have a hundred exotic animals on a winery and it's a for-profit and you're making money and people are, are you know, are making money by uh, letting you have a glass of wine and hang around with, uh, you know, Stanley the giraffe, I would think that there should be laws that make sure that Stanley is protected, not just based on the loving the, the fact that his owners are loving or really care about him, but that there's guidelines and maybe even mandatory laws that say, this is what you got to do if you're going to let Stanley, the giraffe, you know, be in an area that's a, a fire that's, a, that's a prone to fires. Bob, I want to circle back to something very basic and maybe get your perspective on this. And that is individuals with their dogs and cats, especially with their cats. Uh, when you need to round up your cats and get out, you need a plan. You need to think about this ahead of time and get all your gear squared away, right? Absolutely. I, I'm very happy that, that I did have a plan. I'm not sure that there was much more I could do about the two feral cats uh, with just a two-hour window. But I have to tell your listeners that because I'd been through it before and I was evacuated several years ago in a major fire called the Malibu fire, and I, which was much before this one. And I had crates and carriers and I had hamsters, mice, cats, dogs, uh, big dogs, everybody loaded into two cars. I had a place to go to. I was prepared for it. I had bags of food and litter and litter boxes and everything ready. So when this this latest fire happened, I have to say, it was relatively easy for me because I was ready. But it still remains the situation of when you have a special kind of animal that's not easily cooperative. It's not going to cooperate like a feral cat or a wild or a, an exotic animal. Even I... And somebody who's been rescuing for over 40 years would love some guidelines as to maybe there was something I could have done with these ferals in the two, three hour window that I didn't think of. Uh, I haven't figured it out yet. Uh, well, but uh, at the very least, I did know to put the food and water out in yeah. all the rooms yeah. and fill up the bathtub and, and hope, hope for the best. So uh, everybody needs to be prepared. And uh, unfortunately, we get lax. And we also, when we get a warning that you should evacuate because of flooding or fire and then it doesn't happen, we think, oh, well, the next thing that happens the next time, I'm not going to worry about it. My neighborhood, the homes down the street that are burned to the ground are a lesson that uh, just because it didn't happen many times before doesn't mean it won't happen this time. 
Bob Ferber, thank you so much for all this valuable information. You're very welcome, Peter. More with animals today after the break. Dr. Lori Kirshner with the Animals Today Minute. Are you a rabbit person? Ever wonder if your family would enjoy living with one or more of these fun, furry, lovable animals? Well, first you got to do your homework. Rabbits need safe indoor spaces free from electrical wires they can chew. But chew they will, so you'll need to provide them with safe, chewable toys and keep them away from any furniture you like. Rabbits will learn to use the litter box. Use positive reinforcement to train them to do so. And you will need to provide a healthy diet for your rabbits. But it's easy. Mostly hay, some leafy greens, and some rabbit pellets. Rabbits should be fixed to decrease marking, lessen aggression, and give them longer, happier lives. And of course, when you're finally ready, make sure to adopt and not to buy your new family member. Just check out one of the many rabbit rescue organizations to find one or more rabbits that have the right personality for your family. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. holidays are here and we want to remind you of a few things that you can do to keep your dogs and cats safe and happy this season. First, make sure the Christmas tree is secure and cannot fall over and that tree ornaments, which can be eaten, are out of reach. And make sure the tree's water, which can get overgrown with bacteria, is covered so no one will drink it. Holiday plants like holly, mistletoe, and poinsettias are toxic to pets. And be especially careful with lilies, which can cause kidney failure in cats if ingested. Electrical wires should be covered or out of reach. And use extra care with candles, or avoid using them at all. Cats love to play with and eat tinsel, which can lead to intestinal problems and even surgery. So we suggest avoiding tinsel altogether. Don't let your pets eat chocolate, alcohol, table scraps, or anything sweetened with xylitol. And of course, don't give them or let them eat any bones, which can splinter and lodge in the throat or block the intestines. And remember, the holidays can be very stressful for your companion animals. So make sure your dogs and cats have a nice quiet place they can retreat to, away from your guests, so they can rest and sleep in peace. So happy holidays from everyone at Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's www.aianimals.org. Welcome back to the show. Animals Today is a project of the animal welfare nonprofit organization Advancing the Interests of Animals. We are fortunate to have some wonderful advisory board members, each with a unique and interesting story. Now I want to welcome back to the show Eric Mills with Action for Animals, based here in California. Thanks for coming on the show, Eric. I'm happy to be here, Laurie. Thanks for all your good work. Eric, tell us about your professional and or academic background and your current position. 
my professional background, such as it was academic, really has nothing to do with what I've been doing the last 40 years. Mm -hmm. I was a French and Spanish major in college back in Kentucky, got my degree, thought I was going into teaching. That didn't happen. Ended up in the Peace Corps in 1963. I moved to California in 1966 to the Bay Area, Berkeley, for five years. And then since 1970, I've been living in Oakland. But in my youth, I was a big-time bird watcher, so that really got me involved in, you know, nature writing and books and field study, that sort of thing. And when I got to California, I was doing a lot of volunteer work with Sierra Club and Greenpeace and the Whale Center. And then I read Cleveland Amory's book, Mankind, with a question mark, about hunting and trapping. And so that made a big impression on me. And then I learned that they had a an office over in San Francisco for the Fund for Animals at Fort Mason and Virginia Handley, who died what, about three and a half years ago now, was running the office. She was the California coordinator. So I started doing volunteer work there. Virginia took me under her wing. She was the, the single best animal advocate I've ever known in my life. She was just extraordinary. She was a co-founder of Paul Pack, who does the legislative voting chart. And so we would go to Sacramento, you know, a couple times a week for years, working the legislature. That's been a big concern for me over the years is so many animal people are not involved in politics. It seems to me if you're not political, you're dead in the water. Mm. Everything is political in the state from the president on down, and it affects animals, yay or nay. So it's just super important that people get involved with their legislature, I think. And, of course, we had the, the new legislature legislature starting in January, and we got a lot of new faces up there with the recent election. So we're hoping to have some animal advocates there who will carry some animal legislation for us and make this happen. Eric, did you have pets when you were growing up? Oh, yeah. We always had dogs in the family. It's funny. I'm a cat man now, but throughout my teens, we always had dogs around the house. Interestingly, when I was born, my parents had a Doberman pincer dog they loved dearly. His name was Eric. They named me for the damn dog. Can you believe it? <laughs> I grew teeth, I bit them all. At least they didn't drop me off at the pound because they really liked that dog. And I used to spend a lot of time on my grandparents' farm, too, back in western Kentucky, and they always had horses and cattle and sheep and ducks and chickens and all that stuff. Who would you say inspired or influenced you the most? Probably my mother. Mm-hmm. And grandmother and great-grandmother, they had great affinity for animals, and that carried over to me. People have asked me over the years why I got chose to get involved in this. I don't think one really chooses to do animal work. One is compelled to do it. You see somebody in need, be it animal or human, you try to help. You bet. I think that's just the best part of being human, probably. Eric, describe your current activities that benefit animals. I'm spending most of my time now on two big issues, rodeos and chariotas, mm -hmm. Mexican-style rodeos, and the live animal food markets. I saw my first big rodeo that I was made an impression on me back in about 1985, 86, at the Rail Ranch Rodeo in Hayward. And people like to see animals, and I can appreciate why they go to the rodeos and the cowboys having a great time. Then I got started watching what happens to the animals. And I've learned a lot over the years. One big thing people need to keep in mind that the cowboys like to refer to the rodeo as a wonderful tradition and sport. But of course, in, in my view, sport denotes equally matched willing contestants. That does not apply to rodeo. 
and for almost all the animals involved, horses and bulls included, it may take a little longer, it's merely a detour en route to the slaughterhouse. What other sport do you know in which half the competition gets eaten at the end of the game? It's not a game for the animals. The cowboys may be having fun. But most of rodeo is bogus from the get-go. Real cowboys on working ranches never routinely rode bulls or wrestle steers or rode bareback or practice calf roping as a timed event, nor did they put flag straps on the animals and work them over with hot shots and kicks and slaps and spurs and the holding shoots. It's brutal stuff done in the name of entertainment. I know. In your view, Eric, what are the most important problems or challenges for animals? Boy, um, probably lack of people standing up. Over the years, I, I don't know how many hundreds of people told me, don't show me that, it's too terrible. I said, look, if you don't bear witness and speak out, mm-hmm. nothing ever changes. I'm sure a lot of folks in wartime Germany knew what was happening to the Jews in the ovens and looked the other way. You cannot look the other way. Woody Allen says 80% of life is showing up. Well, you got to do that and not only show up, but speak up and speak out and, and raise some hell. I've always said if the animals had a voice, a vote, or a dollar, it would be a different world. But people need to be bear witness and educate yourselves on the issue and, and then do what's necessary to change it. And a big thing, too, animal people need to get a grip on it. You will learn a lot more from the opposition than you do your own people. When you're speaking to the choir, there's really not much education happening. But I talk to the cowboys a lot. I like the cowboys. Quite frankly, I like a lot of them better than I like some of the animal people I work with. They're good folks doing bad things, in my view. They don't see it that way, though. It's a macho exercise in domination. Eric, considering the animal welfare and animal rights movement overall, how satisfied are you with its progress since you began working in the field? Oh, that's a mixed bag. Yeah. I wish more of our people would write letters to the editor and show up at Sacramento, lobby their legislators, meet with the local legislators. Most people don't even know who their state and federal legislators are or know the difference. So just check the front of your phone book and the government pages. You can find that out. But get involved. That's the main thing. And just speak up for the animals. They need all the support that they can get. Those are great messages. Eric, this is a tough field. How do you avoid burnout or compassion fatigue? Unfortunately, what inspires me most of all is anger, and that's not a healthy way to go. The sense of injustice in the world. I read a recent quote from the Dalai Lama, which I really like, said, our purpose in life is to help others, and if you can't, can't help, at least do no harm. Isn't it good? Yes. It's like the golden rule that seems very easy. And most people do care about animals, I found over time. I think we have the biggest lobby in the country, but we're, almost, we're also one of the most unorganized groups out there. I worked over the years with Humane Society of the United States back in the 70s and 80s. They did a lot of work on rodeo. Uh, they had a joint uh, policy statement about rodeo with American Humane. They had short films. They had brochures. They had PSAs. Today, nothing. And they got $175 million in the bank last I looked. Those folks should be leading this, this fight, but they're not. And I don't know what it takes to get that done, but I just wish more people would get get involved in that issue. I think we're on the brink maybe of a sea change in public attitudes toward the animals and entertainment. The bans on elephant bullhooks, the ban on orca shows at SeaWorld, Ringling Brothers going belly up. 
there's something like 35 countries around the world now who have banned the use of wild animals in circuses, not the United States, and why not? We're supposed to be the leader in this, but we're really way behind on that one. What would you like to tell my younger listeners? Read, watch the news, check the local newspapers for animal issues, write letters to the editor, form an animal group at school, perhaps. Get involved. Yep. Get involved, go to demonstrations, raise hell. We just really need to speak up and speak out and not look the other way, even though the news is quite often terrible. But if you don't bear witness, nothing changes. So take personal responsibility. That's the big thing. Eric, thank you very much for your perspective. Thank you, Laurie. More with Animals Today right after the break. Today's Animals Today Minute is about the Danube Delta. One of the most biodiverse places on Earth is Romania's Danube Delta, home to more than 5,000 plant and animal species. Only the Great Barrier Reef can boast more. This ever-changing delta, where the Danube meets the Black Sea, has 30 distinct ecosystems, including marshes, grasslands, reed beds, wetlands, and a forest. After the fall of communism, agricultural areas were allowed to be flooded again, and its prior natural state has largely returned. The Delta is one of the world's top destinations for bird watching, and visitors can view a variety of species including herons, egrets, and kingfisher. Other notable birds found there are bee-eaters, the very colorful European roller, and the hard-to-spot ictrin wobbler. In fact, more than 300 bird species call the delta home or pass through it. In the summer, great white pelicans congregate, and red-breasted geese are there in winter. The delta is simply a delight for wildlife photographers. When you visit, it's best to take a multi-day tour with an established eco-friendly tour company. The Delta is sparsely populated by people, and there's very little infrastructure like running water. Another rare feature of the Danube Delta is the oak forest, home to wild horses, turtles, and snakes. But at least for now, tourists are not permitted in this pristine zone. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner. You're listening to Animals Today. You know, Animals Today is a project of advancing the interest of animals. Advancing the interest of animals is a nonprofit animal welfare organization. We're based here in Palm Springs, California. And if you like what we're doing, please consider donating a little bit to Advancing the Interests of Animals to support the continued production of the show. The website's aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Lori, I wanted to read for you an email you may find somewhat interesting, okay? Okay. Uh, it has to do with uh, my CD player. Your CD player? Yes. Okay. And, uh, so before reading this, I do want to state for listeners that, you know, some of us aging audiophiles still like our CDs and like our CD players. And, uh, you know, the quality of sound that you get from a CD is better than MP3 and better than most of your free, all of your free streaming services. So if you've got a bunch of CDs and they're now 10, 20, 30 years old, you don't really want to part with them. And so there is a bunch of us who like 
to listen with higher quality CD players. Okay, not your little cheapies from Best Buy, but a real good quality player. And we still enjoy our CDs, right? So I happen to have one of these high quality CD players. It was a pretty sizable investment made about five or six years ago, and it's been serving me well. But recently, the drawer is not functioning properly, and it started getting stuck, and I'd have to eject multiple times to get it to pop out and coax it to come out or drag it out. And I knew this was trouble. And finally, it was unopenable and it's got one of my Eagle CDs in there and it can't be opened. So I called the store who sold me the CD player and ultimately got connected with the factory authorized repair center. And of course, it's out of warranty, so I'm going to have to pay, but that's okay. I want the person who can do this well for my for my precious little CD player. So I ship it out there, and uh, Lori, uh, here's what he says. Okay. I found three contributing factors to the tray problem. One, an abundance of fine fur throughout the mechanism, in parentheses, cat, question mark. <laughs> The fur has embedded itself in the grease on some of the moving parts and gears. Number two, a stretched rubber band that connects the tray motor to the main gear. And three, general wear and tear of the transport mechanism. He continues, I did my best to clean out the cat fur and I ordered a new belt, which should arrive this week. If the transport's still sluggish, I'll have to replace it. I'll give you pricing soon. You always want to blame the cats. Well, you I always do. want to blame the cats. This is proof, though. I think I'm totally justified. How does he know it's cat fur? How does he know? Maybe it's it's carpet fuzz. How does he know it's well, cat fur? Well, he's a professional guy. See, he's put it under the microscope and decades see of DNA analysis. I I just don't get it. You don't think this is cat fur? I think he's better? trying to blame it on cats like you do. Well, listen, um, you don't need a smoking gun here. You've got one cat who pretty much lives in the room with that CD player and this cat sheds and this cat has left cat hair and fur all over the room. Does this guy know, does this guy know we have cats? No, he doesn't know. No clues. He just looked at it and said cat. So uh, there's so many lessons here. First of all, yes, we audiophiles, we are a little crazy about protecting our gear, but this is why this happens. It's, it's a travesty. But maybe he blames anything that he can't determine what it is on cat fur. So cat fur is like, that's his go-to excuse? Yeah, maybe. That's your go-to excuse sometimes. Well, there's a reason for Here's my evidence. So I think the evidence is pretty strong. And uh, you want me to have him send us a sample and then we can uh, match it? We can... Maybe it's one of my sweaters fluff. So based upon this uh, possibly expensive uh, little story here, uh, we'll see how much it costs to fix this. And it's annoying because I'm without my CD player because you won't let me get another one. I want to make a little appeal to uh, spouses of audiophiles for the world. And that is, you know, give us a little space. Stop being so harsh. If we want to buy another CD player, let us buy another CD player. And if we want a separate room where no animals are allowed, we should have another, a man cave, a garage, a basement, no animals allowed. Yes, you can get another pair of speakers. I love you. Everything will be a lot happier if you guys just back off and let your spouses, usually husbands, do their thing so they can enjoy their music and not worry about animals and all your other tchotchkes and stuff that's getting in the way of their sound. How's that? Well, why don't you just grow up and leave me and the cats alone? And if the cat wants a nice warm spot on your amplifier. No, no, 
I'm going to let him have it. Oh, uh, I'm going to have to. <laughs> okay, we're going to have to work this out later. But truly, the issue of uh, animals and the stereophiles, there's a, a little uh, battleground going on there in case you didn't know about it. And here's a little example. So not sure if you know this, Peter, but in recent years, the raw food or raw meat-based pet diet has become a popular trend. And this trend exists in both dogs and cats. And in part, it is influenced by books such as one called the Paleo Pet Handbook. And many pet owners believe these raw meat diets are healthier for their animal. This is from Veterinary Practice News, a new study by... Utrecht University scientists, published in British veterinary journal Vet Record, found that raw meat-based diets for pets places owners at risk of serious disease. The study, which analyzed 35 raw meat-based diets from eight brands, revealed that 86% of these sampled products carry potentially deadly pathogens, while salmonella was detected on 20%, and there was various other parasites as well. According to the scientists, pets who are fed these raw meat diets can pass on these bugs to humans through direct contact, like licking or brushing up against them. Researchers wrote that pathogens also can be transferred through direct contact with the food, through contact with a contaminated pet, such as sharing the same bed and allowing licking of the face and hands, through contact with household surfaces, or by ingesting cross-contaminated human food. These raw meat-based diets include raw, dried dog and cat treats such as pig ears, home-prepared meats based from food sold for human consumption, and commercial raw meats marketed for pets. Researchers believe there's no evidence for any benefit of raw meat-based diets compared to the mainstream dry and canned pet foods, and that raw meat-based diets may even be less nutritious. According to the Utrecht study, quote, in nutritional terms, these diets are often deficient in several nutrients and may therefore lead to serious health problems, especially in young animals that are growing. In addition, researchers found pets who are fed these raw diets are more likely to become infected with antibiotic-resistant bacteria than pets on conventional diets. Researchers said, quote, the presence of antibiotic-resistant bacteria in raw meat-based diets could therefore pose a serious risk to both animal health and public health health, not only because infections with these bacteria are difficult to treat, but also because of the potential of it contributing to a more widespread occurrence of such bacteria. It's important to encourage awareness of the possible risks associated with feeding raw meat-based diets to companion animals, and pet owners should be educated about personal hygiene and proper handling of raw meat-based diets, the study said, adding that education from veterinarians is a vital component. Sounds like a bad idea to me, Lori. Yep, does. Okay, thanks for tuning into the show. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. 